Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, back from vacation here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. You know, vacation went well. I enjoyed it. Got a chance to go visit family and uh, see fireworks. You know, it's not Independence Day without explosions. God bless America. Uh, but the the catch to going on vacation, which was really only for three business days or two business days because most folks had Independence Day off, is that everything piles up even though you're not gone that long. So this past week has been insane. Not even talking about the podcast. The podcast has been insane too. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But just the volume of stuff that I've had to deal with at my law firm just from taking effectively Thursday and Friday off has made me never to want to take a vacation again until it hits a point where I'm burned out and desperately need a vacation. Uh, So here's the situation with the podcast. There's been a flying fuckload of stories from the past week and a half. I was still tracking stories during that week where I was on vacation, um, and it's a lot. So what we've done is Mike and I decided we're going to split things into three different episodes. The episode today is going to cover stuff from the week that I was on vacation, what you normally would have gotten last Monday that was instead the What the Fisk. That will be the criminal justice fuckery for this episode. On Thursday, we will have another episode that will have the criminal justice fuckery from the past week. And then the Law 140 on administrative law judges and some changes that Donald Trump made to the uh, competitive service, that is going to end up being put on Patreon. We don't know when yet because we haven't figured out the recording schedule, uh, but that will be a separate patrons-only bonus episode uh, on that particular topic. So that's how this is going to be set up. So this criminal justice fuckery that you're getting today, slightly outdated, only by a week. Uh, but that's going to be what all of this is about, is the stuff that happened during Independence Day week. Also, another very big podcast note for which I desperately need your help. Please pay close attention, uh, and you're going to have to pause the podcast here shortly in a minute. We have been nominated for the 13th Annual Podcast Awards. These are hosted by Podcast Connect. They're kind of a big deal in the podcasting arena. And we have been nominated in the news and politics category. Uh, we're in there with some heavy hitters. You know, for example, I don't know if any of you listen to Ezra Klein, but his show is in this particular category along with several other widely known podcasts. Uh, so the judges make their decision on who wins. They have a special slate of VIPs, but the only podcast that they consider are the ones that have the most votes from listeners between now and July 31st. So what I need you to do is, once you're done with this segment, pause the podcast, go to our website, fiscamall.com, that's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com, find the show notes for this episode, and the very first entry in the show notes is going to be a link to the voter form and registration thing, and what you do is you fill in your name and email so they can find send you a thing to log in. They delete all your stuff afterwards, so don't worry about giving your email to somebody. Once you have logged in, you're going to get all 20-something categories of podcasts. I want you to go to News and Politics and pick us. And then I want you to go to the People's Choice Awards section and pick us. I don't know. We probably don't have a chance of winning the People's Choice Award because there are just so many podcasts there, but it would be nice. But at the very least, go to News and Politics, select Fiskamol. We have the hashtag in our title, so we should be first in the drop-down menu, uh, but fill that out, if you don't mind, between now and the end of the month. I'd prefer you do it now because I know in just two weeks, stuff happens and you're going to forget about it potentially. So pause the podcast, go to the website, click our show notes that will take you to the voting page. And vote for us as part of the 13th Annual Podcast Awards, please. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive in because even though we're splitting this into two episodes, these are still going to be long as fuck episodes because, y'all, there's a lot of shit going on in the country. Um, If you have not already, make sure to join the conversation online. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. Our website, as I just mentioned, is fiscamall.com. That's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our patrons, you can do that on patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. One of the things that is not 
dated, just came out on Friday, but I'm going to bring it up because we're going to use this as the politics piece. Uh, We're going to talk a bit about traitors, as you could tell from the show note title. We've got uh, new indictments and the Trump-Russia investigation by Bob Mueller. And I'm going to give you a link in the show notes to the full indictment because there are a lot of Americans referenced. They're not explicitly referenced. They're kind of oblique references, but they're laying the groundwork for future indictments. This is what we would call uh, in, in criminal defense parlance a talking indictment. The indictment says an awful lot of stuff, conveys an awful lot of information, uh, and it, that's the purpose of it. You know, The people that have been named in this indictment are all Russian nationals. They're almost certainly not going to be extradited, but it basically lets folks know You've been found out. You're going to be indicted soon. You may want to be prepared. I'm going to give you some quotes. So here's this uh, starting out as they're laying the groundwork for all of this stuff. It says, quote, beginning in or around June of 2016, the conspirators, and this is the list of all the Russians who've been indicted, staged and released tens of thousands of stolen emails and documents. They did so using fictitious online personas, including DC Leaks and Guccifer 2.0. Now, you probably recognize both of those names if you paid attention during the election. A lot of people relied on that stuff to go ahead and talk about how terrible Hillary Clinton is. Now, look, I agree. Hillary Clinton was terrible. I've said that before on Twitter. I did not vote for her, but I also did not vote for the Moscow Muppet, who, frankly, in hindsight, is even worse. Uh, But just know, as you're going through hearing this indictment, every person that you saw relying on DC leaks or these Gucci for 2.0 tweets, all of this stuff, these people were essentially serving as puppets of the Russian government. Because it continues, the conspirators, and again, all of these guys, Russian military, uh, also used the Gucci for 2.0 persona to release additional stolen documents through a website maintained by an organization, Organization One, that had previously posted documents stolen from U.S. persons, entities, and the U.S. government. Sidebar, that's WikiLeaks, just so you know. Uh, it continues on or about June 8th of 2016, the conspirators created the Twitter account at DC Links. The conspirators operated that Twitter account from the same computer used for other efforts to interfere with the 2016 U.S. presidential election. For example, the conspirators used the same computer to operate the Twitter account at Baltimore is where, through which they encouraged U.S. audiences to subquote join our flash mob opposing Hillary Clinton and to post images with the hashtag Blacks Against. Hillary. Uh, They also have other stuff in here. They say, for example, on or about July 27th, 2016, the conspirators attempted after hours to spearfish for the first time email accounts at a domain hosted by a third party provider and used by Hillary Clinton's personal office. At or around the same time, they also targeted 76 email addresses at the domain for the Clinton campaign. Now, why does that date matter? July 27th, 2016. Well, earlier in that day, uh, a certain Moscow Muppet said this. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Exact same day. It's almost like Russia was actually listening to the things that Donald Trump, our beloved Papaya POTUS, was saying. So that's in there. Uh, Let's see what else. You have this one. On or about August 15th of 2016, the conspirators posing as Gucci for 2.0 received a request for stolen documents from a candidate for the United States Congress. The conspirators responded using the persona and sent the candidate stolen documents relating to the candidate's opponent. Now, it's not really clear as far as who this is, but based on a prior admission from the guy's campaign manager, it's widely speculated that the candidate in question is Brian Mast, Republican congressman from Florida, who is running his first campaign at the time. Uh, It goes on, on or about August 22nd, 2016, this is just a week later, the conspirators posing as Gucci for 2.0 transferred approximately 2.5 gigabytes of data stolen from the Democrat Congressional something-something committee, whatever the DCCC is, I don't actually know what the acronym stands for because I'm not a Democrat, uh, to a then-registered state lobbyist and online source of political news. The stolen data included donor records and personal identifying information for more than 2,000 Democratic donors. That person is Republican Aaron Nevins, a South Florida political consultant. 
It goes on, on or about August 22nd, 2016, the same day, the conspirators posing as Gooch for 2.0 sent a reporter stolen documents pertaining to the Black Lives Matter movement. The reporter responded by discussing when to release the documents and offering to write an article about their release. That is Lee Stranahan, a total nut job who at the time was writing for Breitbart News. And now he's writing for Sputnik. You can't make that shit up. Uh, it goes on. The conspirators posing as Gooch for 2.0 also communicated with U.S. persons about the release of stolen documents, uh, including writing to a person who is in regular contact with senior members of the presidential campaign of Donald J. Trump. And it goes on to detail the back and forth between these folks. This was Roger Stone, one of the president's advisors. So basically, and it goes on from there. Like the entire indictment is like 16 pages long. I've just given you only five paragraphs of it. We're going to give you the link to the whole thing. You really should read it all. But essentially, there's no real, uh, what am I looking for here? What words do I want to say? There's no real reason at this point to pretend that the 2016 election was not compromised. You figure Donald Trump lost by close to 3 million votes in the popular vote. He barely eked out a win in the Electoral College. That win was, what, 27,000 votes across three states? And this is all based on people repeatedly pointing out essentially Russian propaganda. Like, it's disguised. People supposedly didn't know it was Russian propaganda, even though folks like Tom Nichols and several others pointed out, hey, there's a pretty good chance that this is, uh, you know, Russian military releasing this stuff. But it didn't matter. Republicans talked about the emails anyway. God knows how many news cycles talked about the emails anyway. You have to think, if that was not one of the dominating themes of the campaign, would you still have those 27,000 votes across three states going for Donald Trump instead of Hillary? Frankly, I doubt it. I think more of the Democrats who stayed home would have come out to vote because they wouldn't have think, thought Hillary was as corrupt as she was. I think several of the people voting for third parties like Jill Stein or writing in Bernie Sanders would have pulled the lever for the Democrat instead of going the third party route. And frankly, I think several of the Obama-Trump voters would have stayed Obama-Clinton voters had they not despised Hillary as much as they did, in part because of all of this shit. So, good to know. This is all out there, and uh, I appreciate Mueller releasing it when he did, because you notice, if you look at the past indictments, they've tended to come out as the push to end the investigation starts to reach a fever pitch. Some shit happens, and then bam, there's a new indictment exposing all the people talking about it like they're fucking idiots. So in this case, you had the congressional hearing involving uh, Peter Struck, or Struck, however you pronounce his name that had a lot of the Congress critters looking utterly fucking stupid on its own. But then the very next day, you have this new indictment that really just completely deflates any momentum the Republican Congress critters thought they were getting out of that particular uh, committee meeting. So that's the political news. Let's jump into criminal justice stuff uh, on the court side of it. I've got one court case in Wisconsin, but we're going to save that for Wisconsin. In the Supreme Court stuff... Of course, no new cases, but if you listen to the Law 140 segment of Episode 72, uh, we mentioned that we were fairly certain Brett Kavanaugh was going to be the Supreme Court nominee, and sure enough, we were right. Now, whether or not you like the fact we were right probably depends on whether or not you actually like Kavanaugh as the nominee, uh, but at the very least, I just wanted to reiterate it because I try my best to help bring a higher level of uh, discourse, trying to keep y'all informed ahead of time. And that was one of those pieces. Well, I, how did I know? So Mike asked how I knew. I didn't know. It was what I would call an educated guess. I've operated on a theory that when it comes to the courts, the old political rules that applied before Trump still apply now. So first, I assumed that Kennedy, prior to stepping down, would talk to the president and said, hey, I want you to nominate one of my clerks. That seems like a foregone conclusion. I suspect most justices do that before they step down because they want someone to replace them who's going to continue their particular legacy. You don't want to have someone appointed who's going to be a complete fucking opposite of you. So that was the first piece. And then the second piece is typically when you're looking at judicial nominations, 
presidents ideally nominate someone, at least since Souter, which I mentioned back in episode 72, Republicans have been on a no more suitors crusade for years. They nominate someone with an adequate paper trail and adequate credentials to confirm that they are, in fact, a conservative jurist and they will be on the bench. And out of all of the people that were mentioned as being possible nominees, that list from the Federalist Society and Heritage that Trump has tweeted out, uh, Kavanaugh's got the deepest resume. I mean, regardless of whether or not you like how he rules, as far as credentials go, he was the best. And I'm putting best in air quotes because, again, it depends on what side of the spectrum you're on. If you're a Republican or you're a conservative, Kavanaugh was the the go-ahead choice. Like, it was just a no-brainer from that standpoint. So I was operating under that presumption that the pre-Trump rules still apply, at least as it comes to the courts, because that really is part of the corrupt bargain that Republican Congress critters have made with him. They will let him fuck up everything else. They'll let him, you know put on tariffs, conduct a trade war, shit talk our allies, fuck up immigration. They will let Trump do all of that without engaging in any oversight as long as they can get their judicial nominees because they're operating under the assumption that Trump will be gone in two or six years, but that the courts will live on for a generation. It's, I think it's a stupid bargain, frankly, because there's no guarantee the country's going to even be fucking around in six years the rate he's going. But That's my theory, and so far it's been right, so we'll see. All right, in general research news, the UK Guardian has done an investigation into sex trafficking and how pimps target women who were in jail, uh, planning to put them into the industry once they get out from the story. It says, quote, women in prisons across the U.S. are being recruited by sex traffickers who force them into prostitution on their release. A Guardian investigation has found that traffickers are using government websites to obtain personal information, including mugshots, release dates, and charge sheets to identify potential victims while they are still behind bars. Pimps also use inmates in prisons and jails countrywide to befriend incarcerated women who, on their release, are then trafficked into the U.S. commercial sex industry. The investigation also found cases of the bail bond system being used in sex trafficking operations in at least five different states. Pimps and sex buyers are locating incarcerated women awaiting a court date by using personal data such as mugshots and bail bonds posted online or through corrupt bondsmen. Traffickers then bail women out of detention, and once released, the women are told they must work as prostitutes or have their bond rescinded and be sent back to jail. We'll give you a link. It goes on from there. It's pretty lengthy. Another lengthy story is that the federal news, your national security agency has admitted to improperly collecting tens of thousands of your call records still in 2018. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, the National Security Agency has admitted to improperly collecting what appears to be hundreds of millions of phone records from Americans, casting doubt that the principal restriction Congress imposed after Edward Snowden's revelations has significantly inhibited their surveillance behemoth. In a statement released Thursday saying it has deleted the data wholesale, the agency said it had on its own discovered that telecommunications firms had been providing NSA with records of Americans' phone calls and text messages that it, subquote, was not authorized to receive. The discovery occurred several months ago. Echoing previous explanations for overcollection, NSA said unspecified technical irregularities were to blame. Citing similarly unspecified technical reasons why it cannot distinguish between legally and illegally acquired phone data, NSA opted to delete, subquote, all such data under a post-Snowden update to a crucial surveillance law. Subquote, we did not receive any content, geolocation data, or financial data, Chris Augustine, an NSA spokesman, told the Daily Beast. Now, I'm going to point out, if they're getting text messages, they're getting content. I'm going to just put that out there. Uh, Despite the sweeping remedy for the overcollection, the NSA did not estimate how many records it had purged, let alone how many Americans were affected. The scale is certain to be massive. According to an April report from the Director of National Intelligence, under the USA Freedom Act, and I hate that fucking acronym, uh, NSA collected 685 million call records just over two years. Subquote, we're talking about hundreds of millions of records, said Julian Sanchez, a surveillance scholar at the Cato Institute. Holy shit. Look, your government, your executive branch does not respond to the law. 
does not follow what Congress tells it to do because Congress does jack shit. Congress doesn't legislate properly. Congress doesn't engage in oversight properly. So the executive branch is allowed to run amok. You got to keep in mind, these fuckers have been collecting your phone calls for almost a decade now. And when Edward Snowden released his PowerPoints and all that other shit, people were up in arms. Oh, this guy's a fucking traitor. Well, guess what? Your government was violating the law and surveilling you without authorization. So call him a traitor if you want to. But the fact is the shit that he revealed, you should have known about. It should have been discovered by Congress acting in its oversight capacity. And it wasn't. But then when it was found out, Congress said, look. We're going to go ahead and make some amendments to the USA Freedom Act. I fucking hate that acronym again. Uh, And still, NSA has not actually followed it. So this is your government, your tax dollars at work. Out of California in the LA Times, this is (laughs) such a stupid fucking story. So basically, this is a whiny piece from ICE officers about how they feel so bad that people don't like them anymore and life is so unfair and they just want to go cry. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Across the nation, ICE has never seemed more visible, especially as anger continues over the separation of immigrant families at the border under the Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy. Protesters have rallied across the U.S. demanding that the agency be abolished, calls that have been echoed by politicians. Being an ICE agent has always come with challenges. The agency has faced criticism for years from immigration activists, including during the uptick in immigration enforcement during the Obama administration. But Trump's crackdown on illegal immigration has made ICE much more of a target. Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff won praise from many of her constituents and criticism from the White House earlier this year when she alerted her city to upcoming ICE raids. Many California police departments have long-standing policies against working with ICE to arrest suspects on immigration charges. But since Trump took office, California has enacted even tougher sanctuary state policies limiting cooperation with federal immigration officials even more. And that has heightened the strains. On a recent morning, fugitive operations teams with ERO, that is the ICE Enforcement and Removal Operations Division, uh, fanned throughout the Los Angeles area searching for subquote criminal aliens, illegal reentrants, and immigration fugitives. When the agents stopped for coffee at a Starbucks in Huntington Park, they noted that the negative opinion of the agency had recently intensified. Subquote, even the cops don't like us anymore because they're listening to the news also, said one agent who did not want his name included. Oh, you guys are just separating families. As the agents prepared to leave, a Huntington Park police car pulled into the parking lot. Someone had probably seen the agents and called the police. I've got three words for the agents in this particular story. Boo fucking who. You choose who you get to work for. If you don't like it, fucking quit and do something productive with your life. Uh, Out of the District of Columbia, all J-20 protest cases have now been dismissed. We've talked about these several times now in uh, episode 39, 42, 46, 68, and 69. If you want any of the background, you can go check those different ones. Uh, The gist of it is there were protests during Inauguration Day. A lot of spots were fucked up. The government arrested a flying fuckload of people without evidence. And in one of those episodes, we actually pointed out that the prosecutor said in their closing argument that they didn't have evidence. They practically admitted to it. Uh, but from the story in the Washington Post, it says, quote, federal prosecutors on Friday dismissed rioting charges against all remaining defendants arrested after destructive Inauguration Day protests in the nation's capital, bringing to a close a controversial case that led to allegations of government overreach. Prosecutors began filing paperwork Friday afternoon to formally drop the cases against 39 people who had been awaiting trial. The vandalism of downtown businesses on the day President Trump was sworn in stretched more than 16 blocks as part of a disturbance called Disrupt J20. Members of a large group of protesters set small fires and used bricks and crowbars to smash storefronts. Prosecutors said six police officers were injured. In all, 234 people were arrested and charged with rioting. Of them, 21 defendants pleaded guilty before trial, but prosecutors had been unable to secure convictions at trial against others in the group. Defense attorneys have long contended that prosecutors went too far in pursuing cases against more than 200 people. They argued that their clients were not rioting, but were swept up in the arrests while peacefully protesting. 
So that's out of D.C. and Florida. We've got three stories in Florida this week. We'll start in Fort Myers, where we call the third rule of Fisk. There are no new stories, just new uh, names and jurisdictions. We have another case of an officer terrifying a local restaurant over dumb shit. From the story, it says, quote, A police officer's complaint that a fast food burger he ordered came sprinkled with dirt created a flame-broiled Facebook sensation Wednesday before an investigation found that a seasoning mix was the likely culprit. Fort Myers police officer and resident Snowflake. That's not in the story, but I'm adding that for effect. Tim McCormick posted on Facebook about a meal he was recently served at a Burger King, writing, The burger looked like it had dirt on it, but he didn't notice until it was down to the last bite. He then tossed the sandwich. Burger King franchise officials were quick to investigate. Subquote, this has my full and undivided attention, said Dan Fitzpatrick, the CEO and chairman of Quality Dining Incorporated, the franchisee who operates the particular restaurant. Subquote, we invited senior-level Fort Myers Police Department officials to review the video. He said the officers, along with the regional manager, reviewed video of the cooking process the day the officer received his meal. Fitzpatrick said that after the officers watched the video, they determined that nothing inappropriate had happened to the food cooked for McCormick. I know that shocks you. Uh, if you get bored, go to the show notes and we'll give you links to prior episodes where police have terrorized a pizzeria in Missouri, two different pizzerias in New Jersey, and a barbecue restaurant in North Carolina. It's a fairly common thing for police to pretend that they are victims. Uh, out of Miami-Dade, we have the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. In this case, this involves the police beating of Ephraim Casado, and it turns out that the body cam released uh, doesn't exactly match up with what police say happened. From the story, it says, quote, Ephraim Casado allegedly did nothing but throw a bottle from his car back on March 27th of 2017. According to documents and footage, Miami New Times obtained the Miami-Dade County cops responded by repeatedly punching him in the face, grinding his body into the asphalt and painfully hoisting him into the air by his arms before arresting him on charges of resisting an officer with violence, criminal mischief, and misdemeanor cannabis possession. But after reviewing body cam footage from the ordeal, prosecutors dropped the case and wrote that the video evidence directly contradicted what the cops claimed had happened. MDPD detectives punched the suspect on video and later lied on their arrest affidavits, prosecutors discovered. And state attorney Catherine Fernandez Rundle's office never charged the officers. Subquote, I reviewed the body-worn camera footage and was troubled by what I saw. Assistant state attorney Natalie Puchel wrote in an August 9 closeout memorandum, clearing Casado of any wrongdoing. Subquote, it is my belief that these officers were less than truthful about the actual events that occurred during the incident. The memo from Rundle's office details what seems to be a laundry list of policy violations, if not downright violations of the law. Officers claimed that Casado refused to pull over and that when he finally stopped in front of his house, he exited the car, subquote, concealing his hands before committing a battery upon the detective outside the home on Northwest 91st Street. But when prosecutors obtained the body camera footage, the clip clearly contradicted the cops' sworn arrest affidavits. Prosecutors wrote that the footage actually shows Casado exiting his car calmly with his hands in the air and that the cops forced him out of his car at gunpoint before punching him. In the gruesome body camera footage, which the New Times also obtained, the video shows Casado exiting his car by sticking his hands directly in the air above his head, and a cop then grabs Casado by the arm and whips him around, pinning him onto the trunk of the car. Story goes on from there, as well as the particular footage. But moral of the story is, the police lied, but were never charged for anything, and are still on the police force in Miami-Dade. Uh, at a North Bay village, we have another incident of the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, Emergency lines were ringing off the hook from North Bay Village on September 9th, 2017, as the tiny three-island city braced itself for what was predicted to be an almost direct hit from Hurricane Irma. As the night wore on, power lines fell, streets flooded, and alarms sounded. 
And yet, by midnight, half the members of the 12-person Hurricane Landfall team, the only local emergency unit still on the ground, were sitting around a table at City Hall drinking Corona Light, according to an internal affairs report obtained by the Miami Herald. The documents describe the night this way. Instead of patrolling in their special high-water vehicles or taking calls, the commander told the other police officers that they should stay in and they could drink on the job. So seven guys cracked open beers, talked football, and did what one official described as, subquote, other things guys do when they get together. I don't know what the fuck that means. Uh, but the story goes on. Basically, they tried to cover the surveillance camera because even though their commander supposedly said this, they knew it would look bad. And after they were done with their night of drinking and other things guys do when they get together, whatever the fuck that is, uh, they decided to discard any evidence that they had had any alcoholic beverages or anything else, trying to cover up the fact that as there's a fucking hurricane going on and they're part of the emergency response team with special high-water vehicles, they're all getting shit-faced on the job and being paid taxpayer money to do it. So those are the stories out of Florida. In Georgia, in Glynn County, we have a pretty disturbing situation where an officer basically killed a whole fuckload of people. Uh, and should have known that that was a possibility, but the system kept giving him benefits because he had a badge. From that story, it says, quote, Lieutenant Robert C. Sasser had a well-documented history of misconduct as a Glynn County police officer, but nothing outdid his final spectacle of violence when he shot and killed his estranged wife and shot and killed her boyfriend before fatally shooting himself in the head. The incident has left authorities in Glynn County exposed to charges that one of their own was given special treatment that led to Thursday's killings. Sasser was one of the most notorious officers in Georgia after the brutal 2010 shooting death of Carolyn Small, where he and another officer sprayed bullets across the windshield of the unarmed mother. Both officers escaped punishment and kept their badges and guns. Despite strong evidence, the shooting was unjustified. Subquote, this just never should have happened, said William Atkins, an Atlanta civil rights attorney who represented Small's family after the shooting. Subquote, he never should have had this opportunity. The signs were everywhere. Just last month, a judge banned Sasser from Glynn County after a pair of violent episodes. The first, on May 13th, involved a domestic violence arrest with his former wife, Kate, and was followed just days later by a nine-hour armed standoff with SWAT police that ended with a felony arrest after Sasser tried to assault officers. But despite violating his bond in the domestic violence arrest, a Glynn County judge gave Sasser bond a second time for the assault on the officers. The story goes on from there. But long story short, this guy kept getting breaks and used it to commit three different killings. Uh, out of Gwinnett County, the Sheriff's Department has spent $70,000 in asset forfeiture money on a high-end sports car for the department. And surprise, the sheriff coincidentally assigned the car to himself. From the story, it says, quote, Talk about a sweet ride. The Gwinnett County Sheriff just bought a $70,000 performance car that will be used primarily to get him back and forth to the office. It's certainly built for power and speed. 707 horsepower, 6.2 liter supercharged V8 engine, top speed, should you choose to risk it, 200 miles per hour. Subquote, we're really excited that we have this vehicle that's going to be a great attraction for the audience we're trying to reach, insisted Shannon Volkadav, spokesperson for the sheriff who chose not to comment on his brand new car. The Gwinnett County Sheriff's Department says the car has a dual purpose, get the boss back and forth to work and serve as a draw for a local charity, the Beat the Heat program, where young people are warned about the dangers of distracted driving and drag racing. Drivers get a chance to race officers in a, subquote, safe and controlled environment. The Hellcat, that's the Dodge Charger Hellcat, by the way, cost $69,280. That money came from federal drug forfeitures. Gwinnett taxpayers covered the $3,300 to add hidden lights and sirens. The Justice Department would not comment specifically on whether the Hellcat was an allowed purchase. In broad terms, federal drug money cannot be used to buy anything that's, subquote, extravagant. So the question is, does a $70,000 high-performance car fit that definition? Subquote, I hesitate to use the word extravagant, responded Volkadev. Subquote, we feel like we're going to be able to use this vehicle to help save lives. <laughs> Sorry, to help save lives. I don't mean to laugh. That's the dumbest fucking thing I've heard in a while. 
Uh, it continues, however, no one suggested that purpose when the sheriff's department sent a memo to Gwinnett County explaining why it needed the car. There's no mention of it saving lives because it's a dumb fucking argument. In a February 2018 memo from Sheriff Conway to Gwinnett County Administrator Glenn Stevens, there was no mention of the car being assigned to him or any planned use for the Beat the Heat program, or even that it was the more expensive Hellcat as compared to a normal Dodge Charger. The sheriff only said it would be a Dodge Charger used in, so quote, undercover slash covert operations. It's unclear how such a vehicle could be used to publicly promote driver safety while at the same time be helpful for undercover investigations. No shit. Un- fucking understatement of the damn year. Uh, story's got a lot more to it from there. We gave you the link, but this is just a reminder. Forfeiture money is money seized from people who haven't been convicted of a crime. It should be a violation of the Fourth Amendment, even though it's not. And it's used to promote stupid fucking foolishness like this. Uh, That's out of Georgia. In Illinois, out of Chicago, the Chicago City Council has approved a massive taxpayer finance settlement in another excessive force lawsuit. I guess we could call this the third rule of fist because we talk about this shit all the time. From the story, it says, quote, Chicago City Council on Wednesday approved a $2.5 million settlement in an excessive force lawsuit that accused police of traumatizing a three-year-old girl by pointing a gun at her chest and striking her handcuffed mother. A lawyer for Aretha Simmons, the girl's mother, says upcoming Chicago Police Department reforms don't address how officers treat children during arrests. Attorney Al Holfield Jr. says, subquote, it's not even on CPD's radar. A 2017 Justice Department report sharply criticized Chicago police for too often using excessive force, including against children. The city has since pledged to overhaul police procedures and training. Sidebar, they haven't actually done it. They've just talked about it. It continues, quote, when the council's finance committee approved the settlement, a city lawyer agreed with many of the core claims in the lawsuit, telling the committee that the girl remains traumatized and will likely require psychiatric treatment into adulthood. Jesus Christ. How badly do you fuck up a little kid that she's going to need psychiatric treatment for at least two decades? 15 years. She's three now. Assume she's going to need until she's at least 18. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Who are you protecting and serving? And that's the outcome you get as a result of it. That's in Illinois. Out of Louisiana, the Florida ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice. In Jefferson Parish, one of the two key witnesses who identified rapper Corey Miller, he goes by C-Murder, as the guy who killed someone at a nightclub in 2002, has now recanted, uh, claiming that police pressured him to lie to avoid being charged. From that story, it says, quote, One of two key witnesses who identified rapper Corey C-Murder Miller as the lone gunman in a 2002 nightclub killing in Harvey has now recanted claiming in a sworn statement that Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office detectives pressured him to lie under threat of a criminal charge. Miller's attorney, Paul Barker, filed a memorandum Tuesday in 24th Judicial District Court, arguing that the newly obtained affidavit from the witness Kenneth Jordan warrants a hearing and Miller's release. Miller, 47, is the younger brother of Percy Miller, the rap mogul better known as Master P. His claims of innocence, broadcast and rap albums released from the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola, where he is serving a life sentence, have helped fuel interest in the case and drum up support for his cause. It's the subject of an episode that airs Wednesday in a true crime series on investigation discovery. Jordan also recants in the TV episode, saying he was threatened with a 10-year sentence over the death of his child if he didn't finger Miller as the nightclub shooter. Subquote, if I could turn back the hands of time, I wouldn't have did it. In that moment, it felt like that's what I had to do, he says in the TV episode. I don't know if he's telling the truth or not. It's one of those things where Louisiana has such a long track record of police coercing confessions and coercing IDs that you just don't know. I mean, he could be telling the truth. He could be lying for some fame now. No fucking telling. So that's Louisiana. Out of Massachusetts, we have two stories from Boston from the same day that are basically mere images of each other. So the first one is good news. Don't let it be said that I don't report good news. And from that story, it says, quote, On a day that saw temperatures soar into the 90s, a Boston police sergeant made sure a black Labrador retriever named Olive kept cool. Sergeant Sam Silta was working a detail at Boston Children's Hospital on Thursday when a family who was rushing their son to that hospital approached him. 
According to a statement from Boston police, the family was in a panic because they didn't know what to do with the dog. Silta helped the family with parking and then offered to keep the dog with him for the duration of his detail. The department posted photos of Olive relaxing in the sergeant's air-conditioned cruiser. According to a police statement, Silta was also walking the dog around the campus during the family's hospital visit. So that's the good news, because on the other side of that is Puppy Side, also by the exact same department. From the story, it says, quote, a Boston police officer shot and killed a pit bull that charged at police. Now I'm going to pause. Note the word there, charged, that particular word usage. Charged at police as they secured a handgun found on Dorchester Street where four men had been shot and wounded earlier on the 4th of July. A police spokesman said the animal came at the officers like a missile and that the owners of the dog made no attempt to get control of it. But the owner of China, an eight-year-old pit bull, said the animal bolted from her house and said she was trying to call it back when the dog was fatally shot. Subquote, I screamed her name, China, stop. And her ears perked up and she turned. And then I heard, bat, bat, bat said 59-year-old Shirley Good, standing on her porch Thursday while pointing to the street where her dog's blood stains were still visible. According to Boston Police Sergeant John Boyle, officers responded to the intersection around 10.30 p.m. after a gun was found on the street when a car had pulled out and drove off. Around 6.40 p.m., four men were shot, one critically. The officers established a secure crime scene and were in the midst of processing the area for evidence when the dog, subquote, came running at them between two parked cars. Now, notice that change in verbiage. The police say came running. The newspaper parroting the police, you know, propaganda say charged at. Uh, it continues. A man was killed in a Dorchester shooting Wednesday night just hours after four other men were injured in another shooting less than a mile away. Boyle said the officers tried to retreat from the approaching animal, whose owners, subquote, made no attempt to call off the dog or secure it, but were not able to do so because the animal kept running in their direction. One officer pulled a service weapon and fired, killing the dog. The number of shots the officer fired was not disclosed. Subquote, there were many other civilians, including children, behind the officers. If the dog got behind them, it would have been running at civilians, including children. Now, notice the contradictions in that particular statement because before, the officers couldn't get away because the dog kept coming after the officers, so it wouldn't have gone after the children. That's point one. But then point two, you notice there's no mention anywhere of aggression. No talk of barking, no talk of snarling, no talk of its teeth being out ready to take a bite out of somebody. You have a dog that's running towards you and that's it. So it continues, in a statement, Police Commissioner William B. Evans said his officers acted to protect themselves and civilians. In addition to the con this is a subquote, in addition to the constant barrage of illegal fireworks in the vicinity, an unleashed vicious dog charged at my officers as well as other adults and children in the neighborhood, creating an immediate danger. So again, we have the charging at the children, even though earlier they said it only came at the officers. We have this random ass addition of the illegal fireworks to go with the earlier random ass addition of the Dorchester shooting and the random ass addition of four other people being injured. None of that stuff is fucking relevant. None of it matters. None of it has any bearing at all whatsoever on the nature of the dog and the supposed need to shoot it dead in the street. This is the type of shit that our society promotes. We promote this type of killing of animals and then lying about it. And then the papers just fucking parrot the whole damn thing without even noting the contradictions in the statements being made by the police. So that's in Massachusetts. That's in New Jersey. We've got two stories here in Patterson. We have a refresh of an earlier story we talked about in episode 68 involving Ruben McCausland. He's the guy who beat the shit out of a suicidal man at a hospital and was caught on video. From that story, it says, quote, Facing a federal judge in Newark, a 26-year-old Patterson police officer on Wednesday admitted beating a suicidal hospital patient in two attacks in March, one of which, prosecutors said, was captured on cell phone video by a fellow officer. 
In addition to a charge of depriving that man of his civil rights, Reuben McCausland also pleaded guilty before U.S. District Judge William Walls to stealing crack cocaine and heroin from a crime scene last fall and then selling the drugs in Patterson. The officer also admitted to selling two pounds of marijuana between November 2017 and January 2018, as well as $700 worth of heroin pills in April. So basically, you had a drug dealer on the force beating the shit out of people for sport. Uh, that's in Patterson out of West Deptford. Thomas McWayne once received accolades for... I'm going to pause. This is a genius fucking scheme. Like, out of all of the dumb criminal cops we cover... This guy was actually tried to be smart about it, so I feel slightly compelled to give him at least a little bit of respect that he wasn't a total idiot. But listen, listen to this. So we, let me go back. It continues. Quote, Thomas McQuain once received accolades for his work helping drug addicts get help. A grand jury has now indicted the West Deptford cop on charges he filed false arrest reports and then referred drug offenders to a rehab program in which he had a financial stake. McWayne, 31, of Woodstown, was charged last November with official misconduct, tampering with evidence, and computer crime. After a six-month probe turned up evidence of alleged wrongdoing, the 11-account indictment now describes a December 2016 arrest in which McWayne allegedly referred a man he nabbed to a drug rehab center in California in which McWayne had a financial interest. He agreed to dismiss charges against the man if he attended the program, then submitted the man's personal information to the center. Officials say McWayne, while apparently posing as a civilian, allegedly asked people to meet up with him and to bring narcotics. He would then arrest them and refer them to the drug rehab service. The indictment also describes false police reports filed against three other people following their arrests in April 2017. The indictments do not suggest that he tried to divert those ones into the rehab program. The Township Police Department launched an internal affairs review after learning about a dubious arrest, then referred the matter to the Gloucester County Prosecutor's Office. When McQuain learned of that investigation, he subquote, deleted text messages asking an individual to bring drugs to the scene of a motor vehicle stop, authorities said. According to count 10 of the indictment, McWayne allegedly deleted those messages from the phone of one of the people he falsely arrested in April 2017. The indictment also alleges that he accessed computerized criminal records without authorization in order to benefit someone else. And there's more in the indictment, but this is like, it's again, it's a genius thing. You text people, drug dealers, whatever, as a normal citizen saying, hey, bring me some drugs. You show up, you arrest them in your capacity as a cop, and then you say, look, we'll dismiss these charges if you enroll in this drug rehab program where I'm going to get a take of the money that you pay them. It's a pretty elaborate, thought-out scheme. So as far as idiots go, this guy's on the smarter end of the spectrum. Uh, so that's out of New Jersey. In New York, we have uh, New York City, the first rule of Fisk again. Uh, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. In this case, quote, an off-duty cop plowed into a car and took off in Brooklyn. And when the irate victim chased him down, the cop socked the man in the face. Tanvir Ahmed, 28, smashed into another car at Avenue P and Ocean Parkway in Midwood. The driver of the damaged vehicle followed him several blocks west to Quentin Road and Dayhill Road to confront him. Ahmed, who was allegedly drunk, hauled off and punched the man. A video of a short chase shows Ahmed barrel down a one-way street after the angry man tried to open his car door. The ossified officer opened the door to lose the man. When Ahmed finally came to a stop, a police placard could be seen in his windshield. That led the man behind the camera to exclaim, Holy shit, he's a 6'7 cop, indicating that Ahmed is assigned to the 67th Precinct in East Flatbush. When police arrived, Ahmed refused to take a breathalyzer test. He is charged with assault, DWI, and leaving the scene of an accident. So we give you that link in the show notes where you can watch the video for yourself. Uh, out of North Carolina, right here in Durham, we have a judge ruling that a cop has lied. This, this whole story is a mess because the judge ruled that a cop lied about another cop supposed raping somebody. But there's something hinky that went on because other people had been charged and convicted and it's all a mess, but I'm going to give you a snippet from the story. It says, quote, last year, a Durham police officer used a search warrant to accuse a fellow law enforcement officer of rape and kidnapping. The accused officer was later suspended and lost pay. 
But that search warrant contained intentionally false statements, a judge has now ruled, a ruling that might cast doubt on the officer's testimony in other sexual assault cases in Durham. And the judge was critical not only of the police officer who wrote the false warrant, but also of some of the top leaders at the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, who launched the investigation into the accused officer. The judge's ruling was a blow to the leadership of the SBI, which has now appealed the ruling. The judge found, among other things, that SBI leaders might have lied under oath, ignored internal policies, and violated the U.S. Constitution. After he was accused of rape in January 2017, longtime Durham-based ALE agent Donald Ray Richardson was investigated first in Durham, where prosecutors never charged him and later in an internal investigation at work. He was suspended without pay in order to never again work in Durham. But Richardson appealed his punishment, saying his rights were violated. Richardson was originally investigated over allegations that he raped a woman while on duty. He was never charged, and now the Durham Police Department officer who wrote the search warrant is himself under investigation. The Durham Police Department declined to comment other than to confirm its investigation into Jesus Sandoval, a veteran sex crimes investigator, is ongoing. Sandoval was still on the job and had not been suspended. So there's a lot more to that one. We'll give you the link to that in the show notes. Out of Ohio in Cleveland, this is a reminder that prosecutorial discretion is a joke and that we use laws to ruin people's lives over trivial shit. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, A Cleveland man who testified in defense of his roommate in a child pornography case admitted on the stand to taking sexually explicit pictures of a then-underage girlfriend and now faces a charge of his own. Edward Marrero, 27, said while testifying Thursday that he took the photos in April of 2011, according to an affidavit written by FBI agent Lisa Hack. At the time, she was 17 years old and he was 20, authorities say. The age of consent in Ohio is 16, but federal law states it is illegal to create, share, or possess sexually explicit images of anyone under the age of 18. He is now charged with producing child pornography. If convicted, he faces between 15 and 30 years in federal prison. Now, look, I'm all for these types of sex offender statutes to exist. Kitty porn is a serious issue. It fucks up the victims. The people who peddle the shit deserve long prison sentences. But I don't think when people were coming up with these statutes, they intended it for it to apply to consenting adults who aren't that far apart in age. I mean, I was a freshman in college when I was 17. I didn't turn 18 until March of my freshman year. So the notion of me dating someone who was 20 is not that far-fetched, especially if the genders were reversed. A college junior or senior dating a college freshman is pretty fucking normal. But now this guy's going to have his life ruined. He's going to get it convicted because it's a fairly uh, strict liability type offense. He's going to do time. And when he's done, he's going to have to forever register as a sex offender because six years ago, he took a picture of his girlfriend that she consented to. It's stupid. It's fantastically stupid. Uh, out of South Carolina, in Mount Pleasant, police have lost their shit over a high school reading list and are demanding that books be pulled off of it. From that story, it says, quote, Community members, cops, and parents in one South Carolina school district are all pushing back against two summer reading books they believe propagate anti-police feelings. The books, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas and All American Boys by Jason Reynolds and Brandon Keeley, were on a list of four titles for students taking an English One college prep course. Both books mentioned have received numerous awards and accolades, including the Coretta Scott King Award. The president of the Fraternal Order of Police for Tri-County Lodge No. 3 told local news, It's almost an indoctrination of distrust of police, and we've got to put a stop to that. There are other socioeconomic topics that are available, and they want to focus half of their effort on negativity towards the police? That seems odd to me. Block neglected to mention that The Hate You Give also depicts a police officer as one of the strong moral centers, a father figure, and positive role model for the main character's star in the book. Angie Thomas's debut novel is about Star Carter, an African-American 16-year-old girl who witnesses her unarmed best friend Khalil shot and killed by a white police officer. Star's uncle Carlos is a detective on the same police force and remains a strong counterpoint to the officer who shot Khalil. 
The other book being challenged, All American Boys, tells the story of Rashad, a black teenager, assaulted by a white police officer who mistakenly accused him of shoplifting. The other main character, Quinn, a white teenage boy who is very close to the offending officer, witnesses the attack. The book rotates between the two boys' points of view as they grapple with raising racial tensions in their school and community and figuring out where they stand amid these tragic events. Students only need to read one of the four books on the list. The other books on the list are Love Letters to the Dead and 23 Minutes. According to the local news, the option of letting students decide for themselves what to read isn't good enough. The Fraternal Order of Police say the two anti-police books should be dropped from the list because they focus on negativity toward officers. I have a proposal. I don't know that anyone in this particular uh, district listens to this podcast, but I would agree with the FOP. Drop those two books and in exchange have the kids listen to this podcast for a couple episodes. You know, we'll, we won't have any fiction. We'll get rid of all that fiction shit. We'll stick with pure nonfiction, well-sourced actual news, the reality that they're going to be living in when they graduate. I think that's a fair trade. So if any of you happen to know any of the uh, powers that be in this particular school district, Please pass on my proposal. Uh, out of Richland County, quote, a former Richland County deputy won't be allowed to be an officer anywhere in the country anymore after he admitted in court to breaking the law. Caleb Broom pled guilty to a charge of malicious injury, malicious, malicious, I promise you I can pronounce that properly, malicious injury to private property. Uh, Broom and another officer were responding, and see, here's the thing. The part of why I'm mispronouncing that word is that this is one of those stories that is so fucking stupid, I become dumber having read it, which is why my articulation is off. It goes, Broom and another officer were responding to a domestic dispute back on February 23, 2016. While the female victim was leaving and packing up her home, Sheriff Leon Lott says Broom defaced a poster in the garage and then took a roll of double-sided tape. The poster was of the continent of Africa. Broom blocked letters of the word Nigeria, changing it into a racial slur. Now, I have problems with this. I have problems with the reporting of it, but also how utterly fucking stupid you have to be to do it in the first place. Because if you block off the I and the A in Nigeria... What you get is Niger, the country right fucking above Nigeria on the map. They're, they border each other. They're actually in the exact same spot. So to think, as this particular cop, that he's making a racial slur, all he's really got to do is just look at the fucking map and draw a circle around it. Like, ha ha, you fucking moron. Uh, story continues, quote, the amount of the stolen items was only about 10 cents, but Lot fired Broom over the incident anyway, saying the officer's actions tarnished the badge. In the plea deal, Broom signed an agreement where he gives up the ability to get law enforcement certification in South Carolina. The agreement will also go on file at the South Carolina Criminal Justice Academy and into a national database, which will stop him from working in law enforcement at any agency in the United States. We'll see. I mean, frankly, he's so fucking dumb, he would be great working for Attorney General Beauregard at the Department of Justice. Uh, in Tennessee, out of Nashville, we have unadulterated good news. Don't let it be said I don't report good news. Uh, so back in episode 32, we talked about a court case where uh, indigent drivers, people that were too poor to pay fines relating to traffic tickets, had had their licenses suspended. And I mentioned that the judge issued an injunction in that particular case. And usually an injunction is a precursor to an outright win on the merits because one of the conditions to get an injunction is you have to show a likelihood of prevailing. Well, that's happened. So from the story in Reason by C.J. Saramella, he says, quote, a federal judge has blocked Tennessee's practice of suspending driver's licenses for unpaid court fees without first determining if the debtors are too poor to pay. The policy, U.S. District Judge Alita Trauger ruled yesterday, violates poor residents' due process and equal protection rights under the 14th Amendment. In her order, she writes, quote, As applied to indigent drivers, the law is not merely ineffective, it is powerfully counterproductive. If a person has no resources to pay a debt, he cannot be threatened or cajoled into paying it. He may, however, become able to pay it in the future. But taking his driver's license away sabotages that prospect. 
as part of her order, uh, Judge Trauger has ordered the state to stop suspending licenses for unpaid court costs and to give all residents who had their licenses suspended for not being able to pay, give them a chance to have their licenses reinstated if they were too poor to actually pay the fines. So that's out of Tennessee and Wisconsin. This is the one judicial opinion I mentioned earlier. The state Supreme Court has ruled five to two that police can now take your blood without a warrant while you're unconscious. Uh, the case is State of Wisconsin versus Mitchell. I'm not going to give you much of a summary. I'm going to give you a link in the show notes to the opinion if you want to read it. But essentially, a guy was driving while he was intoxicated. And the court held that police taking his blood without a warrant was okay because he had given implied consent by virtue of driving and had waived any chance to object by drinking so much that he passed out. And that was all good enough. Now, this is a stupid decision. It further erodes the rights protected by the Constitution because the fact is getting a warrant is fast and easy, especially with getting e-warrants like you can in almost every single jurisdiction now. The fact of the matter is this type of ruling ends up having applications outside of the DWI context because the, this type of talk oh, well, you happen to take something that renders you unconscious, therefore you waive your right to object to have your blood drawn. Well, good luck if you take any kind of prescription medication that you end up having an adverse reaction to. You're fucked. Police can just get your blood willy-nilly however they want because you chose to take it, especially if you choose to take it and then happen to drive. So that's out of Wisconsin. I'll give you a link to the opinion. Short answer is it's a dumb opinion, but no one cares because everyone hates people who drive drunk. So, hey, fuck the law and the Constitution. Uh, out of Virginia. And this is, God, I hate this type of story. It's a good-ish story, I guess. Basically, a pair of folks have created a thing to try and stop people from getting shot during traffic stops. All right. So the story says, quote, a northern Virginia couple wants to help save lives. And they are doing it through a simple creation. It's called Not Reaching. And it is an identification pouch for your vehicle that holds your driver's license, registration, and insurance card. All the documents police officers ask for during traffic stops. Jackie and Wayne Carter came up with the idea after seeing a national news coverage of traffic stops that turned deadly, like those of Sandra Bland and Philando Castile. Subquote, we used to talk and talk about what was going on, but nobody was coming up with a solution, said Wayne Carter. Everybody just kept pointing fingers. Subquote, it was such an unrest in my spirit that I said to my husband, we have to come up with some kind of solution, said Jackie Carter. So I prayed, and one day I woke up and I said to my husband, I got it. Jackie interviewed several police officers asking what makes them nervous during traffic stops. Their response, motorists reaching for documents. So the Carters say they simply want everyone to ride away safely if they're stopped by police. Basically, it's a pouch. You put it by the, uh, the vent on the driver's left-hand side so that you don't even have to touch it. Officer could just take the pouch and it has your stuff. And I mean, I get it. I understand why this stuff exists, why this is an invention, but it's so stupid that we even need this. I mean, it's like inventing rape-resistant panties, saying that we got to have this so that women don't get attacked. I mean, okay, I understand, but the fact is you shouldn't be attacking women anyway in order for this invention to even have a cause to exist. Same type of deal with police. If you can't pull someone over and have them get their stuff without you being so terrified that you're at a high likelihood of shooting them dead, you probably need to be in another profession. It's amazing to me. It is absolutely amazing to me that we will give up our constitutional rights and just basic common fucking sense because we're so concerned about catering to the lowest common denominator of the taxpayer-funded police force that we're going to start throwing these things in our cars. So that's in Virginia. That's our state-by-state -state justice news for this half of the week. Every now and then we do have stuff from other countries. And even though this is in Canada, this is actually a United States thing and how fucking incompetent our people are. Because now Customs and Border Protection are boarding Canadian fishing vessels in Canadian waters to ask about illegal immigrants. From that story, it says, quote, A little-known cross-border dispute that has simmered between Canada and the United States since the late 1700s is now approaching the boiling point. 
In the past two weeks, at least 10 Canadian fishing boats from New Brunswick have been intercepted by U.S. Border Patrol agents while fishing in the disputed waters around Machias Seal Island. A spokesperson for the fishermen says, Lawrence Cook, chairman of the advisory board for Lobster Fishing Area 38, said Wednesday that some Canadian vessels were boarded by American agents who asked about possible illegal immigrants. Subquote, there's been a bit of a misunderstanding there somewhere, Cook said in an interview. They're in international waters, so Border Patrol shouldn't be boarding Canadian vessels. Machias Seal Island, which is about 19 kilometers southwest of Grand Manan Island and east of Maine, is in a disputed area known as the Gray Zone, where lobster fishermen from both Canada and the United States have long fished side by side. The small island is a flat, treeless piece of rock, which includes a large colony of puffins and a lighthouse that is manned by two Canadian lightkeepers year-round. However, both Canada and the United States claim sovereign jurisdiction over the island and the surrounding waters at the mouth of the Bay of Fundy. As lucrative lobster catches have increased in the zone, competition between fishermen has intensified in the past decade. Subquote, neither country accepts that there is a gray zone, said Stephen Kelly, a research scholar at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and a former American diplomat who served in Canada. Subquote, that's created more tension in the area over the last decade. Cook said he's never before seen border patrol agents in the area, where the U.S. Coast Guard typically patrols. He said he had no idea why American authorities are suddenly flexing their muscles. Subquote, all of a sudden the attitude has changed. What caused that? You'll have to talk to Border Patrol. The U.S. Border Patrol, which is part of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, declined to comment and referred all inquiries to the U.S. State Department, which did not respond to a request for an interview. I'll tell you why they're changing their attitude. It's because Donald Trump is fucking president and he's encouraged them to do all sorts of ridiculous shit in the name of trying to protect the country from all these evil, evil immigrants as part of America first bullshit. It's ridiculous. No one is trying to immigrate into the fucking United States through a fishing zone in Canada off the eastern coast of Maine. It's just not happening. And we are blowing a flying fuckload of taxpayer money to even be trying to figure it out. It's so stupid. Okay, so I apologize for the rant. That is it for this particular episode for this first half of the stuff that we're covering. That was about 26 pages of the outline. I've got about 28 pages more for the Thursday episode that we will hopefully record on Tuesday or Wednesday. And then I have several more pages for the Law 140 on administrative law judges that we will make a Patreon exclusive for our friends of the Fisk. If you liked what you have heard, if you enjoyed this particular episode, please do us a favor. Leave us a written review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have not already done so, Go to the show notes, click the first link, and go support us in the nomination for the 13th Annual Podcast Awards. And as always, on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, thank you all so much for listening, and we'll talk to you in a few days. Take care.